0: Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host and collectives editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up on the podcast is an interview with Bailey Gifford's Toby Ross, who is fund manager of one of Interactive Investors' Ace 40 recommendations, which is the Bailey Gifford Responsible Global Equity Income Fund. In the interview, Toby explains why investors should focus on long-term dividend growth rather than targeting companies with high dividend yields. As usual, we'll end the podcast with our Fund Spotlight feature. In this episode, Dmitry Lipsky, Head of Fund Research at Interact Investor, is going to be talking about a passive fund that has become the newest member of Interact Investors Super 60. But firstly, myself and Tom Bailey, ETFs Editor at Interact Investor, going to chat through a couple of fund and investment trust news items tom let's start off with scottish mortgage dipping its toes into cryptocurrency this news emerged shortly after the recording of the previous episode of the podcast a couple of weeks ago so scottish mortgage invested 100 million dollars into blockchain.com these are big numbers of course but in the context of Scottish Mortgages' current assets of around 18 billion, the stake represents around 0.4% of the trust's assets. And Blockchain.com adds to Scottish Mortgages' unlisted holdings, which account for around 17% of the trust. Scottish Mortgages' investment in cryptocurrency comes six months after Ruffer caused a stir when it disclosed that it had invested in Bitcoin. Tom, what's your thoughts on these developments? Do you think this is the latest sign of more professional investors taking notice of cryptocurrency? I
1: mean, yeah, there's definitely been a sea change this year. It's been said for years now, Bitcoin's face to see a more professional adoption. Um, If you remember back in 2017, when Bitcoin peaked at $20,000 a coin, there's a lot of talk of this at the time, but kind of really very little evidence. The most notable thing you had back then was that Bitcoin futures were listed on the CME in Chicago in December of that year, I think. It wasn't really that much of a momentous event in the end, uh, particularly after the large price declines that that happened. Um, But in the past year, Bitcoin seems to have gained uh, some kind of limited credibility as an alternative, albeit very risky asset class. So alongside the investment funds and trusts you mentioned, you also have some prominent companies such as Tesla and um, Jack Dorsey's financial company Square announced that they were um, you know buying bitcoin to put on their balance sheet as a store of value now you can say it's a bit kind of gimmicky and stuff but these, these are real companies make, making this choice here another notable thing uh, this year uh very recent news is that the s p Global indices the you know the big index provider that does the s p 100 and the dow jones um they announced that they're launching an index tracking the price of bitcoin and, and a few other um kind of of these cryptocurrencies so i i think having an s p index it definitely seems like some sort of landmark in terms of of being accepted as a as a as a somewhat legitimate asset class? Personally, uh, cryptocurrency is something that
0: I just do not comprehensively understand enough about for me to invest. But I am happy to trust a professional investor that is much more clued up than me. And if, if Scottish Mortgage thinks that this company is worth backing, then I'm not gonna argue with that. It'll be interesting to see how, how the company fares and whether or not it IPOs in the future. And also whether Scottish Mortgage um, adds although cryptocurrency companies to its portfolio in the future?
1: Yeah, but I, I would uh, also though, be cautious of kind of the idea that Scottish Mortgage investing in blockchain.com is kind of say an endorsement of Bitcoin in and of itself by the investment trust. I, I guess they don't really have much of a view of it. But you know, I, don't, I doubt they're uh, endorsing Bitcoin as kind of the future of money or even as an asset class that all well diversified investors should own in their portfolio. I think it kind of a more kind of uh, the idea that you know whatever your view of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, a lot of people want to own and trade it and that's not going to go in any way time soon. They might be wrong for it, they might be mad whatever but even as the price, price halves tomorrow, a lot of people want to trade it on the exchanges, they're going to keep trading on exchanges and so owning shares in a, in a company that makes money from from facilitating the trade of cryptocurrencies just kind of makes sense from a business perspective.
0: Meeting company management is of course part of the day job of a full manager. Um, usually face-to-face but over the past year or so the, the majority of meetings would have been remotely uh, taken place. Meeting company management team is an attempt by full managers to try and gain an edge over the market and indeed other investors and a recent academic paper shone the spotlight on whether or not these meetings lead to better decision making. Tom, you took a look at the paper, what were the key points and the conclusions?
1: Yeah, so the paper is based on uh, nine years of insights into a company which is now Aberdeen standard, but you know, that's from a merger with uh, standard life in 2017. So it's mostly looking at the kind of past track record of standard life funds and and the in-house research teams there um, stretching back nine years. And so the paper looked at company meetings between fund managers and, and kind of how fund managers behaved after and and in-house recommendations and everything like that. So to sum it up really briefly. Uh, they found that fund managers were more likely to buy or sell shares after meeting uh, with with company uh, directors and uh, managers. And those trading decisions were more likely to be good decisions.
0: I mean, when I took a look through the paper, I thought it was really interesting. Um, it shows that, you know, the ability of fund managers to gain access to the management of companies they invest in is a force for good. Um, and of course, meeting company management is regularly brought up by fund managers as an edge that they have over passive funds. So it is comforting for investors that this has been acknowledged by an independent academic study. It would also be interesting to see a wider study take place um, involving more fund management companies to see whether the same conclusions are drawn. Before we move on to our fund manager interview, I'm just going to briefly run through the new entries to Interactive Investors' most popular funds and trusts for April, which are based on the number of buys during the month. In terms of the top 10 most popular funds, there were two new entries, Marlborough Nano Cap Growth and Artemis US Smaller Companies. While for the top 10 most popular investment trusts, there were also two new entries, And they were Smithson Investment Trust and Alliance Trust. To read the respective write-ups and to see how the top 10 tables have changed from March to April, please visit our website, ii.co.uk. Joining me for the next part of the podcast is Toby Ross manager of the Bailey Gifford Responsible Global Equity Income Fund, which is one of Interactive Investor's ACE40 recommendations. So the fund invests in dividend-paying companies but through a growth-focused approach. Could you run through why you invest in this manner and the sort of companies that you tend to focus on?
2: I guess a starting point would be that I think the traditional view of income investing was that the best dividends came from the worst companies. Um, I sometimes call it the hold your nose uh, school of income investing, and I remember um, having this explained to me by a financial advisor when I was sitting with a relative some some years ago and they were sort of talking through what, what her options for investing were. And, and the view was, you know, if you wanted income from your investments, then you had to invest in basically very mature businesses that have run out of opportunities to to grow and deploy capital, and so had nothing better to do than pay it out to, to to investors. And and actually, often those are businesses that have got a bad smell around them. So, you know, tobacco, big oil, arms, payday lenders. I mean, in some cases, literally a bad smell around them. That kind of his traditional view of income investing just just doesn't feel right to us. And it didn't feel right when we launched the fund two and a half years ago. A couple of reasons for that. Firstly, if you're a long-term investor, the, the thing that's actually most important to you, even if you're an income investor, is how fast is this business going to grow? We think the question that income investors should be asking themselves isn't what's the yield today, but what what's the dividend going to be in 10 years' time? That, that's the really important question, because that's going to both drive how much income you get from an investment, but also, you know, what's the what's the capital growth along the way going to be? Am I actually going to make money from owning these shares or, or not? The follow-on to that is, well, if you're taking that ten-year view of investing, then why would you want to be invested in businesses that have got big sustainability challenges against them? You know, wouldn't you be much better off in companies of the future that can pay dividends as they grow, companies that are thinking ahead about sustainability issues? So. to to our mind, the the long term lens leads you very naturally to a very strong focus on sustainability issues. The final part of that is you have a huge benefit when you've got a global opportunity set. So there are just so many growth companies out there to pick from. We we reckon the universe of dividend paying liquid companies is something like four and a half thousand stocks. So if you're an active stock picker, then like you really should be able to do better than, you know, HSBC and Shell, if those are your best ideas for delivering exciting income and growth on a of you, then we think there's there's something not, not quite working in the process in our view. In terms of what, what we're looking for, we're looking for businesses which have still got a big growth opportunity ahead of them, that are run by adaptable dynamic management teams, that generate cash so they can pay dividends as they grow, you know, businesses where growth and the dividends aren't in tension, and that are ahead of the curve on the big sustainability questions. So a great sort of example of the type of thing we invest in Microsoft, that's the stock we've invested in for years and years. It's And it fits all, it fits all of those questions. So the, the kind of mental model we've got is go, go for growth compounders that can pay dividends as they grow. And that, that's gonna be what really works best for income investors over the long run.
0: So by focusing on companies of the future that have potentially and hopefully years of growth ahead of them, rather than old economy companies, dividend yields tend to be lower. The Bailey Gifford Responsible Global Equity Income Fund has a yield of around 2%. So for investors who would like a high starting yield today, how would you respond to that and convince them to instead think longer term? Yeah, that's right. And it's it's a very fair challenge. And, And I think one of the things that income investors
2: do often find hard is that When they think about income, they think about the near-term yield, not what that's going to be in two or three years' time. There are two reasons why you need to take that long-term view. One is the resilience of the income stream. And 2020 was a great lesson for this. So if we wind the clock back to, and we were talking in December 2019, the yield on our fund at the time was around 2.5%. And the yield on the FTSE All Share was just over 4%. So it looked like our yield was much, much lower than the, the the UK market. But what happened during the course of 2020 was lots of the UK companies, the more mature businesses had to cut their dividends and dividends from the UK market fell by about 40% last year. While our distribution from growth businesses that were more resilient from a global opportunity set, you know, our our dividends were up last year. So in actual fact, although it looked like the income from the UK was going to be much higher, those more mature businesses were going to be higher, in actual fact, it was the growth portfolio that delivered more income because it was more resilient. So that's the first point. Don't focus too much on the high starting yield. The quality of the underlying dividends really matters. And we, we've just seen what a difference that makes. But but the second is, is growth. You know, if you think about the compounding and the power of compounding, compounding dividend growth is really valuable to an income investor. So a company today that grows its dividend at 10% a year is going to be giving you, two and a half times as much income in 10 years' time. And it's that kind of compounding that we think investors really need to have
0: in their mind. Let's now move on to how the fund invests in a responsible way. Could you give listeners a brief overview of how the fund applies environmental, social and governance criteria? we know that many
2: responsible investors have got red lines so we apply the normal exclusions that investors would expect so we don't invest in things like tobacco or arms or fossil fuels or businesses which have got really low standards of business conduct but that's table stakes in our view i think what's much more important than what you don't invest in is how you actively choose the companies that you are going to focus your time and energy on and that and that's around your stock picking process and for us Because we've got this long term view, because we're trying to find businesses that we're still going to invest in in 10 years time, the sustainability considerations are are really important to us and they're part of our research when we're trying to tell if a company's a long term winner or not. And so as analysts, it's a core part of what we're analysing, the questions we're asking of every company. But we've also got a dedicated sustainability specialist with a lot of experience. He's got 30 years of experience in the field. A big part of our process is, for every company we're considering, he's asking three questions of it. Firstly, what's the company's impact on society? How positive or negative is that? Secondly, what's the company's ambition to address that impact or, or further it? If, if it's a company that has a positive impact on society, is the company's management team really ambitious to, to really accelerate that impact? Or if it's a company where there's a challenge, do we think management fully understand that challenge and are committed to being best in class? And then the third part is trust. Can we trust them? Are they people where we can trust their track record? Do they deliver on their commitments? Are the governance structures aligned? Take a company like Nova Nordisk. So that's a big holding for us, the diabetes company. That's a company where we'd say, look, the impact of their products is very positive, but as important as that, their ambition to broaden that and deepen it is, is really significant. So they are investing very heavily in the next wave of pioneering therapies. They've got some obesity treatments that could be really transformational for huge numbers of obese people around the world, and they're pioneering in that field. And, and they're also really committed to broadening access to their products, so they're very focused on the big unmet need of people with diabetes globally. They're also a company that takes a very long-term view of their purpose, where the governance structures are aligned and the track record suggests we should trust them. So it's that kind of analysis that informs what companies should be big holdings, what we should own, and which ones we should say, actually, you know what, this isn't a fit for our approach.
0: Next, I was hoping you could run through um, some recent portfolio activity. You know, what have been your latest um, buys and selling the funds? Added to that, has it been a busier period than usual um, over the past year due to the COVID-19 pandemic? Because we take
2: such a long-term view, our training activity is typically really, really low. We tell the companies that we speak to that we're looking to get married, not go speed dating. So we we, you know, we, we like to take our time and really get to know a business before investing. And we're not uh, trigger happy on on the way in or out. On, honestly, it hasn't been a particularly elevated period for trading. Uh, but there have been a few new ideas over the last six to 12 months. A couple um might be interesting, t- two Asian companies that we bought at the end of last year. And actually, what's interesting about them both is that they're both founder-managed businesses where the founding CEO is absolutely critical to the business's success and we think could have a very long runway with the business. One of those is a Taiwanese company called Silicon Motion. They are the leaders in a very specific type of technology that controls um, you know, the flash memory devices you've got in your laptop. The founder, Wallace ku is an obsessive about that. And we think there's lots of really interesting growth opportunities ahead of it. Cracking little business. The other one is NetEase, which is very different to the Chinese video gaming business, but again, one of the two dominant franchises there. Fantastic creative engine behind that business. So those are both good examples of what we like. Cash generative, huge growth opportunity, great management team and an eye on the future when it comes to sustainability issues. In terms of sales, and there have been a couple where the pandemic kind of highlighted flaws in the business model and flaws in our investment case. Or, you know, we just decided that they, they weren't meeting our standards. So one was Sandvik, the Swedish industrial engineering company. That was one where we just weren't happy with the, with the way they behaved during the pandemic so they took a lot of government support in order to hit a short-term margin target that just didn't sit right with us and they also suspended the dividend partly because of the aid that they'd taken from the government it just felt to us like management were prioritizing the wrong things so that was when we sold
0: you touched on this um, earlier and um, that a number of your holdings were resilient um, throughout <laughs> the COVID 19 pandemic could you run through a couple of examples and examples in which that continue to look well placed to sustainably grow their income in the coming years?
2: Yeah, um, so we, we did have a couple of companies that reduced their dividends, but the vast majority of our holdings actually increased them last year. Some really quite materially, and, and you know that's the main reason we were able to grow our dividend last year in a really challenging environment. You know, globally dividends were down 15, 20%, but our distribution was up. And that came from growth at lots of different companies who've all got different opportunities. Um, So a couple of examples. One is a company called B3 that's the Brazilian Stock Exchange. So that is a market where they just benefited from the fact that there was more trading going on in the Brazilian stock market and they were growing their product line. And last year, their dividend was actually up by over 90%. So, and and that's because the, the business just traded very favorably, very capital-like business, traded really favorably in that environment, did very well. And and we think the opportunities there remain very large. Another example would be Schneider, which is a French industrial company, but they're a a leader in lots of electrical equipment. So they're benefiting from the electrification of vehicles and energy efficiency technologies. And they've just come out again and said how strong demand is at the moment. Customers are more focused than ever on greening up their infrastructure, greening up their office buildings. And that's a huge source of demand for them. So the business is trading really strongly. The dividend was up last year, up this year. And we think that's a business that can, that's on the right side of history and that can just grow and grow.
0: For our own spotlight feature, I'm joined by Dimitri Lipsky. Head of Fund Research at Interactive Investor. So, Dimitri, it was announced this week that a new fund has joined the Interactive Investor Super 60.
3: Yes, that's right. So, we, we added a Wisdom Tree enhanced commodity ETF to our rate at least Super 60. And this would be a specialist, a low cost option. It offers investors a broad and diversified commodity exposure covering major sectors, major commodity sectors, such as industrial and precious metals, energy, and agriculture. So this uh, product combines both passive and active investing. It aims to track the performance of the so-called rule-based indexed, optimized role commodity index, and at the same time, uh, looking to outperform the widely followed passive index, um, which called Bloomberg Commodity Index. So the fund is, is very well positioned to benefit from the current market climate and uh, potentially will deliver higher real returns for our uh, investors. Its effective cost management, a lower risk profile, gives the strategy a competitive advantage against other funds in the sector. So what are the
0: top holdings? And in terms of sectors, how is the fund positioned?
3: Yeah, as, as, as I mentioned, they, they, this ETF offer a very well-diversified exposure uh, to a basket of um, commodities. Its, it's um, holdings tend to show also a lower correlation between each other, uh, which is very important. So at, at sector level, the largest allocation is to agriculture, which is around 37%, and the largest individual position is in gold which is uh, over 12%. And and as we know, the gold uh, traditionally has been viewed as a hedge uh, against um, inflation.
0: And finally, why should investors consider commodities as part of a diversified portfolio?
3: Commodities um, traditionally are considered a a good source of uh, portfolio diversification. And uh, commodities show low correlation with equities and bonds. And in addition, uh, this um, asset class has historically performed in line with the movement of inflation. And uh, as such, it's typically viewed as a good hedge against inflation, uh, which has recently become more of a concern among investors.
0: That's all for this episode. Hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do give us a like. And of course, you can find loads more investment insights and ideas at ii.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.